Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. For this conversation, we're moving to another new section of the library of books that make up the Bible, Mike, because we had been focusing on the letters from Paul, but this is a new section. Yeah, we're probably still in the same section of the library in that we're looking at letters, but perhaps we've moved down a shelf, if we keep that analogy, because as you say, the letters we've looked at in previous episodes were all by Paul. But from here on, the letters are not by Paul, they're by other writers, and uh, in church tradition, they've often been called either general epistles or Catholic epistles, Catholic not in the sense of Roman Catholic, but Catholic in its meaning of universal to the worldwide church. And that was because they were thought to to be sort of general circular letters rather than to specific churches. Actually, not the case in all of them by any means. So, yeah, we're, we've, we've moved down a shelf uh, to the next batch in our adventure. And this first book is the book of Hebrews. So who wrote that? Well, this is easy to answer. We have absolutely no idea. Now, um, some listeners might immediately be thinking, well, isn't that one by Paul? And that's because in some of the older English versions, particularly the older King James Version, it was sometimes headed the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. But that, frankly, was a pure guess. And we're pretty sure now that it wasn't Paul. The style is different. The argumentation is different. It is so different. It it would be like little Johnny handing in homework and the teacher looking at it and think, Johnny didn't write this. Mary did. I recognize that. This is not your work, is it, Johnny? So it's anonymous. We're we're not told who it's by. Uh, To be honest, over the years, a whole number of names have been suggested Luke, Barnabas, Apollos, Silas, Epaphras, Timothy, some of those people we've met in Paul's letters. But the honest truth is we simply don't know. One possibility is that it might have been written in Alexandria in North Africa, which became a big centre for the Christian faith, because the style of the argument is very, very similar to styles that we use there. But the truth is we don't know who wrote it? We don't know when it was written, though it's clear it was by second generation Christian, because in chapter two, the author talks about this salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. So the writers recognizing he was not first generation, didn't hear it from the Lord. So we don't know who, we don't know where, we don't even know to whom we've seen in Paul's letters, it's often from Paul to, well, this one just launches straight in, but it becomes really clear straight away, really from the first verse, that the recipients of this letter were Jewish Christians. Why? Because it is steeped in examples and argumentation from the Old Testament that only someone who knew their Old Testament scriptures well would understand. And that's why eventually it acquired this title of to the Hebrews. That was only added in the second century, by the way. But it was because there was this recognition that it was sent to Jewish Christians 
who were under considerable pressure to give up following Jesus and to go back to their old Judaism. So it sort of sounds as if it doesn't actually matter who it was from, but it matters who it was to. Yes, uh, and that's a really good way of summing it up, David, because realising the who it was to is the key to understanding this letter. And failing to understand that has often led people to misunderstand quite seriously parts of this letter, particularly a part in chapter 6 where it talks about the dangers of losing your salvation. And as a pastor over the years, I've had many people come to me worried about that passage. You know, they perhaps committed what they think is some unforgivable sin and, and now they are lost forever. But it is in understanding that this was written to Jewish Christians who were under great pressure from fellow Jews to abandon Jesus and to go back to their old Judaism. And the whole argument of this letter is very simple. Why on earth would you want to do that? Why would you want to give up Jesus, who is better, and go back to your old Jewish way of living that you gave up because you found it didn't work. And when you came to Jesus, you discovered that he was better than anything and everything in the old covenant. So, hello, uh, why would you want to abandon him and go back to what you know couldn't save you? How do you hope to be saved if you abandon Jesus and go back to what you acknowledge couldn't save you. So the context of knowing to whom this was written is really crucial for getting life out of this letter. But let me ask you just to explain a bit more fully the change that somebody who's been a Jew and becomes a Christian actually means. That's quite amazing in itself, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it still is today. And it still happens. Praise God. We hear testimonies regular of Jews who come to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. You know, it's really easy for us to slip into thinking sort of lazily that almost Christianity is a, a different religion. It isn't. It is the fulfillment of everything that we see promised going right back to Abraham. And Jesus is the promised Messiah that we find prophesied again and again in the Old Testament. So what would it mean for a Jew becoming a Christian? It would mean them acknowledging that this Messiah who they were looking for had indeed come. And it is Jesus. Jesus, not just a human Messiah, as Jews had been expecting, but Jesus, the Son of God himself, come into this world. God himself come as our Messiah, as our anointed one, as our saviour. So that's the first big step that it requires, is acknowledging that Messiah has come. Messiah is Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God, God incarnate. Now, that's a big step to take. I think the second thing that would be required is to understand that while a Jewish believer might still choose to keep some of the traditional Jewish ways, that they are not essential for salvation. 
And if they choose to do so, they do it out of their continuation of their cultural and religious heritage, not because they are seeing this as essential to salvation. It's Jesus who is the focus. So what these folk would be tempted to be doing is really to say, deny Jesus. You have to stop saying that Jesus is Messiah. He's not come yet. And you certainly have to stop saying that Jesus is God. I mean, the very heart of Judaism, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. How can Jesus be God? So you would be denying some pretty fundamental things about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Before you give us maybe an overview of the whole book, because that would be helpful, I mm. think, um, maybe the obvious question, if you're not a Jew or Jewish believer, is there still some value in this book and indeed reading it today? Oh, absolutely. Though it wouldn't be the first book I'd give you to read as a new or maybe even very young Christian, because it, it does help to have some understanding of some of the Old Testament background. But do you know what? Even if you don't, you can still get loads out of it. You may not understand every single verse or argument, but the whole drift is really easy to understand. So maybe I'll just do what you asked me now and do that overview. So the letter starts with a, in the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So straight away, it's clear there that this is to Jewish Christians. He's thinking about how God has revealed himself to Israel in the past. And here then is the contrast around which the whole letter hangs. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. So he's establishing right at the beginning that this Jesus is indeed God come to us, no one less. And what did this Jesus do? Well, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior. And let me just pause there for a moment. Who Jesus is, God himself come into this world. What Jesus did, he dealt with our sins and is now back at the right hand side of the father. Now, once you have understood that, the writer is saying, why would you want to go away from Jesus, back to your old Jewish faith, when Jesus is superior. Now, superior to what? Here comes your whistle-stop tour of Hebrews. He's superior to angels in chapters 1 and 2 because he's the son who gave his life for us. He's superior to Moses in chapter 3 because Moses was only a servant and Jesus is a son. He's superior to Joshua and the rest from their journeying that he gave to God's people in chapter four, because Jesus gives a rest that lasts forever. He's superior to the high priest of the old covenant from chapter four right through to chapter seven. Why? Because he's a completely different kind of priest. He's superior to the old covenant itself 
in chapter 8 because he brings a new and better covenant. He's superior in the sanctuary that he operates in in chapter 9. He's superior in the sacrifice that he makes at the end of 9 and into 10. And he's superior because he offers a sacrifice that's through his own blood bringing an eternal redemption. You got the word there, David? Superior, superior, or let's make that simpler. Better, 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 better. Jesus is better. So why would you want to go back to what you left? Therefore, at the end of chapter 10 and in chapter 11, take hold of this by faith. Remember all the great heroes of faith in the Old Testament because they're in heaven cheering us on in chapter 11 and so chapter 12 onwards let's press on with this faith in Jesus and live it out and let's not give up now it's obviously a very strong argument and a very strong case but let me just ask you again what is it that's pulling people back to their Jewish roots it's not made 100% clear in this letter but I think we sort of have to read between the lines as scholars have done and it seems to be pretty clear from what we know of the wider context that was happening at the time as well, that it's quite simply pressure from their old Jewish friends, maybe Jewish family. You know, not the whole family might have come to know Jesus as Messiah. So there is huge pressure to give up on Jesus. Now, you know, we still see that today. For example, if someone comes to know Jesus from a Muslim background, there is often huge pressure from the family to give up and to come back to what they see as the true way. Often they are ostracised. Somebody who becomes a Christian from a non-Christian background. Yeah, exactly. And there can be huge pressure there, can't there, to go back to, why don't you come out with us on Saturday nights and get drunk? You know, what are you doing with this stupid religion stuff? So I think the argument is still very, very relevant for us today, wherever we've come from, because it's an eternal argument in the sense that this is something that, that Christians have faced throughout the ages. Pressure, you know, not to take this faith so seriously, not to press on, come back to the old ways. And of course, in this particular context, there was an awful lot of history behind, you know, the Jewish story went way, way back to Abraham. There were certainly stories of God's encounters. Of course there were, because this is part of that story. So I think the pressure must have been pretty relentless. And that's why he does this careful argumentation going through. I mean, really, in that bird's eye view I gave you there, it pretty much touches every part of Jewish faith from the Old Testament, then pulls in on all the great heroes of faith from the Old Testament and really says, you know, these, these were great. Actually, he'll use a particular picture. He'll say they were all shadows of what is to come. Now, think about a shadow. You know, is there re any reality to a shadow? Well, the answer is no. All it is is the absence of light because there is some object there stopping the sun or whatever shining on it. But what a shadow does, although there is no reality in itself, the shadow says, but you can look and see, because this shadow is only here because something is making it. 
So don't look at me at the shadow. Look for what's making the shadow. And that's his argument. He's saying these things in the Old Testament, they were important. Of course they were. God gave them. But none of them in themselves could do it. You know, the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament couldn't do it. All they could do was make you ceremonially clean, he will say. But what they're designed to do is to say, to put a longing in your heart to say, where is the reality that these shadows are pointing to? And to look and to see that they all point to Jesus. Was one of the biggest challenges, though, the fact that the Messiah they were expecting didn't turn out to be the Messiah that Jesus was? Very much so. And, of course, the Messiah that Jews were expecting in the first century world was a sort of political and military deliverer. They had developed this idea over the centuries that when Messiah came, he would rightly set up the kingdom of God on earth, but how would he do it? Well, in the only way they could envisage it, which was, you know, to get a horse, to get a sword, to raise an army and to whop God's enemies. And that would be the Romans, of course, in that particular circumstance. So when Jesus comes along announcing that the kingdom of God is here, but the Romans are still here, how can it be? He cannot be Messiah. And so they rejected him. So the Messiah they had been looking for was military, political, a Messiah by might. And of course, Jesus would come not with a sword, but with a cross. And that's why Paul will write in some of his letters about how the cross is offensive to the Jews. How on earth can Messiah come with a cross? How on earth can Messiah be nailed to a cross? This was the very opposite of what they had expected. And yet, if only they had looked carefully in their scriptures, if only they had looked at passages like Isaiah 53, they would have seen that he prophesied that Messiah would indeed come and suffer and die and pay the price for our sins. So it sounds like, to some extent, this letter from whoever it was to the Hebrews consists of a series of, how can we put it, portraits of Jesus Christ the Messiah. And if that's the case, then what are some of those portraits? So one of the first things we get in chapter 3 is a picture of him as a son and not a servant. He says Moses was faithful in a servant in God's house, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. So a huge contrast there. Moses, of course, absolutely key in Jewish faith. So he, he's portrayed as a son in chapter 4 onwards. He's portrayed as a great high priest, but a high priest who is better, well, for a number of reasons. First of all, because he's not human. Chapter 4, verse 14, he talks about, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. So here is a high priest, but who's a perfect high priest. So for the Jewish believer, that's different thinking. It is, isn't it? Because, you know, they accepted the high priest was, uh, he was human, he was not divine, 
he was sinful. I mean, one of the things the high priest had to do was to offer sins for his own sacrifice. And in Leviticus 16 and the ritual for the Day of Atonement, sacrifices have to be offered there, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the tabernacle itself, because it was recognized that somehow got sinful. And the high priest himself has to go through rituals to recognize that he is sinful. So here is a, a high priest who is completely different. I mean, that must have been pretty mind-shaking, really. The high priest also had this sort of go-between role as well. Yeah, absolutely. And that comes out quite significantly in this section. And it's because of who Jesus is, this sinless high priest, uh, that he can go on to say, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So he's a welcoming priest. He's a priest who intercedes for us, he actually says in this again, and who intercedes uh, endlessly because he's there at the right-hand side of God. That's where the writer clearly puts him. So we've got this picture of a, a perfect priest. And perhaps just to go on to say, since you asked for what pictures we get of him, because this one is like the flip side. Here's the amazing thing. Jesus is not only the perfect priest, he's the perfect sacrifice. He is both the priest offering the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. But again, this sacrifice is utterly different from the sacrifices that were offered under the old covenant. What were offered there? Well, animals, God was very clear about that. It was never to be a human being. So let me just read a couple of verses here from chapter nine. The writer says, Jesus didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Did you hear those words? Once for all. My goodness, the priests were in and out, in and out, in and out all day with the sacrifices that people brought. But the writer is clear that because the sacrifice is the sacrifice of no one less than the Son of God himself, this is an absolutely perfect sacrifice that works for everyone once and for all. And his own blood, it said. And his own blood, his reference there to the blood that he shed on the cross, of course. So this is why this is a more perfect sacrifice that he says cleanses our consciences. All the ones in the Old Testament, they, they could just make you sort of ritually clean. But, but this one gets down deep into your conscience, touches those parts that nothing else could do. I can sense now that this is needing a whole new mindset for these new believers. Absolutely. And that's really what he encourages them to do towards the end of his letter. Because having rooted his arguments fully in the Old Testament and shown how Jesus is better, 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 chapter 12 then sort of is a turning point where he does a therefore. And he's going to apply it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, all those heroes of faith he's called on in chapter 11, who are cheering us on. And, and then he imagines us being in the, uh, the racetrack 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Notice that, with perseverance. Come on, don't give in. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, in other words, Fix your minds now on him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So keep your eyes on Jesus. I know your friends and your family are trying to undermine that, but keep your eyes on him. Keep running after him. And actually, he'll go on to say, even see all this that you're suffering, the pressure and the persecution, just see it as God's loving discipline to help you more like Jesus. And then the end of his letter will just include some very practical exhortations to keep living that Christian faith out. So that is as relevant to someone who is from a home that hasn't got a Christian background, somebody who's come from another religion to Christianity. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why this letter still has a sort of an ongoing message, and it's not just for Jewish Christians today. It's an encouragement to keep going. You know, I think probably pretty much everyone who becomes a Christian, unless you come from a two or three generation Christian family, then you are going to face opposition. You know, you may face opposition from your husband or wife, from your kids, from your parents, from your wider family, from your friends at work, from all sorts of things. Uh, increasingly, it might be from the state itself and the laws it sets up that make it increasingly difficult to believe what you believe you should believe as a Christian based on the word of God. So, you know, there is always going to be pressure in every culture and in every time. And the answer that this book gives to us is this. First, look back. And remember what it is that you came out of. Do you seriously think that life was good and you were having a great time there? No, of course not. Or why would you have left it behind to come to Jesus? So look back and remember, but also look up and see Jesus. Keep your eye fixed on him. Remember, he was opposed. Not everybody loved him. Oh, there were many that loved him, but there were many who hated him. And there were those who nailed him to the cross and who would continue to oppose his followers throughout the New Testament church and have done ever since. But keep your eyes on him. He's faithful. He's better. So look back and remember, it really isn't worth going back, is it? Look up and remember who Jesus is, what he did for you, and see him as your model to keep going. And above all, always remember that Jesus is better, better, better. You mentioned, I think, chapter 11, the heroes of the faith. Who are they and why are they relevant? They're some of the sort of great key characters of the Old Testament. And the writer of Hebrews calls on them to really support his argument for how do we make all of this ours? How do we 
keep hold of this message? And the answer is by faith. All of these people are examples of faith in God. They kept going when it wasn't easy. He defines faith. He says, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. You know, if, if we could see it or hold it or touch it, we had it now, it doesn't need faith. It's there. And then says, this is what the people of old were commended for. And then he goes through a whole list of people by faith, by faith, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Rahab. Uh, and then he gets to the end and he says, what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David. And so he goes on and he's building up an argument and he's seeing these characters in the Old Testament as they're in this arena, this athletics arena, a sort of in the stands there cheering us on saying, come on, David, come on, David, you can do it. I did it. Hold on by faith. That's how we got there. Come on, boy, you can do it. So they're all examples of faith because all of this, if we're going to make this real, we have to not only come to Jesus in faith, we have to keep hold of Jesus in faith. And that, of course, was the very thing that they were in danger of letting go of that passage in chapter six. He says, you know, how, how are we going to escape if we neglect such a great salvation? We know the past didn't work. Come on, keep hold of Jesus and the heroes of faith are cheering us on. And do you know what? That stadium over the generations has just got fuller and fuller and fuller. My granddad's up there, I know, who prayed me into God's kingdom and many, many others. And, you know, there are times when it's just good to remember we can do this because the saints before us have done it. They got there. They got there by faith. And if we'll do what this letter says, look back and remember that we gave it up because it wasn't worth it. And look up and remember Jesus, who's there, the greatest cheerer on of all, the one who's been through it all and is praying for us and who will most definitely get us there at the end. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.